A flashback on the career that made them who they are today. On this episode... You know, now that I'm 68 years old and I look back at my 28-year-old self, it's like, hey, you know, Gene Simmons came on to me. You know, let's... Ru- you know. <laughs> Your lyrics aren't necessarily political. No, we're, we're more interested in the cause as the reason why somebody wants to knock somebody over the head with a bottle. This is Erica M's Reinvention of the VJ. Now, here's Erica M. Welcome to the Reinvention of the VJ podcast. I'm Erica M. And today, I'll be chatting with a woman who paved the way for me and so many other women in Canadian media. She's a trailblazer. She's a fashion icon. She's a proud mom. And maybe one of the hardest working women in media today. That's right. Jeannie Becker will be joining me in just a few minutes. But before we jump into the interview... If this is your first time tuning into my podcast, let me just give you a bit of background. Reinvention of the VJ is my meandering and monumental conversation with some of the quirky and beloved on-air hosts you watched on Much Music. I was only at Much for just a very short time, the first decade, so many of the guests on this show I've never actually worked with or met in person. But there's one thing that we all have in common. Each of us played a small part in our country's most influential pop culture platform, Much Music. And then we left at different times for different reasons, each of us off on our own next adventure. It's that story of what happens after Much, the reinvention, the resilience, the innovation, the luck, and the struggles that really intrigues me. And hopefully, after Jeannie Becker and I chat, you will know her a little better and maybe even see her a little differently. Most importantly, I hope this conversation resonates with you and and that it helps you on your own journey because all of us are in a state of constant reinvention. And I want you to be part of the show. So actually, right after I finish my conversation with Jeannie, I'm going to give you a phone number that you can call, and then you can tell me which much VJ I should interview next, and you can tell us what you'd like to talk about or offer up questions or share stories. That would be really great. But hopefully, while you're listening to Jeannie and I today, you're going to find some tidbits, some insights into what it takes to get through some tough times, how to reinvent, and even redefine what success is so that you can apply it to your own life. So, speaking of success, I would like to introduce you to a woman I look up to, not just because of all her awards, not because she's interviewed amazing people, not because she has the best wardrobe, it's because she's tenacious, she's tough, she gets the job done, she gets a lot of jobs done, and she's freaking kind, she's generous, and she's loyal. Please welcome Jeannie Becker. Jeannie. Oh, I'm overwhelmed. That was really nice. Well, and you know true. what? I needed to hear that stroking stuff. <laughs> and I, I don't mean that, that you were being patronizing or anything, but uh, you know, we are all going through some tough stuff once again these days Yeah, uh, for various reasons. Uh, life has taken a very strange turn and... Um, you know, we're not as, maybe we're not as tough as we used to be. At least I'm not. I think I'm, you know, it's kind of softening a bit around the edges, you know, compared to that feisty chick that I was when I started hosting the new music back in 1979. So, but you know, it's, it's interesting to me that I reached out to a lot of people who were on much and you were the first person to respond and you were absolutely excited to to do this for me really and i it made me think you know you probably are one of the most successful of all the people in the public eye to have started at city and much music and yet you are probably the most down to earth and how have you managed to do that when you've been in the public eye with such reverence for so many years Yes, but darling, I don't think I ever would have lasted as long as I had without having 
both feet firmly planted on the ground um, without having a very fierce and fabulous work ethic, thanks to um, my late great dad, especially, who really uh, was a worker, boy, seven days a week, 12 hours a day, years and years and years. Um, and the upbringing that I had in general, you know, my parents were Holocaust survivors. They taught me about tenacity and fearlessness. That was like the number one motto that I had in my mind. Don't be afraid and never give up always, wherever I was, whether I was, you know, uh, trying to get an interview with uh, Michael Jackson or running after Karl Lagerfeld or, you know, whatever I was doing, it was like, I got to be fearless. I got to be tenacious. But I think if you've worked that hard and if you've really seen the underbelly of these worlds of media and music and fashion, you really can't afford to be any place lofty. I mean, it's, it's, it's all very humbling. Um, I, I feel like I've had to work for every single thing that's ever come to me. And, and, and I'm, I'm, not, I'm not saying that in a bitter way. I'm saying like, wow, what a privilege that I got to work and doing the work that I love so much, exhausting at times, maddening at times. But, uh, but definitely uh, I maintained a kind of passion for it, strangely as many times as there were that I wanted to give up and I wanted to quit and I cried myself to sleep in hotel rooms all around the world. Uh, it, it, you know, and, and going through my, you know, hmm, it was almost like I was in my heyday, like the height of my career, like in the late nineties when my marriage just totally exploded. And you know, that was a total nightmare because I just had to keep going. You know, fashion doesn't stop for anyone. You just, just keeps on going. So, uh, I don't know. I just feel so blessed that I've had the chance to live this kind of extraordinary life and that you, who I adore, and I've always said, always, you know, in the early days, really thought of you like as this little sister, you know, this is hip little chick that's coming to work with us, uh, that you would reach out to me for my stories because I think our stories are the most important things that we can give one another, the very best gifts that we can give one another. If it's not about the stories, you know, what is it about? You've got to be able to reach as many people, touch as many people, move, motivate, inspire. And um, so I'm just, again, privileged to be able to be here with you today. You're literally giving me goosebumps as you're talking. If you, if you were in the same room, you would see because you are, you are the real deal. And it's interesting how back in the day, so let's go back to almost 1979 when you first started at City. There mm -hmm. was no such thing as much music at the time. No. Um, they there was tended, no such thing as MTV at the time. Of course. Like, we did it before the Americans did it. <laughs> Moses tended to hire people who were the real deal. He didn't look for slick he looked for passion and people who were tenacious. So tell me, what was Jeannie Becker or who was Jeannie Becker in 1979 that allowed you to score the coolest job in the country in the music business? You know, okay, so you have to understand some of the history of what got me uh, even in front of Moses in the first place. I was working in St. John's, Newfoundland for CBC Radio. Uh, before that, I, I had been a, an actress, a mime artist. I started in showbiz when I was 16 years old, professional showbiz. So, you know, I, I was a, a showbiz kid, a professional. I had my actor card. I spent three years working at the CBC in St. John's, Newfoundland, um, doing arts reporting and documentaries. And uh, this was back in the day when there wasn't a lot of that going on at CBC Radio. So again, I was very privileged to get in on the ground floor of all that. When I moved back to Toronto in 1978, I had a big stash of, you know, reels of tapes under my arms that I could, you know, I felt empowered. I had all this experience. And here I was in the big city. And okay, I paid my dues in Newfoundland. I was going to try to make it. And I knocked on every radio station door, you know, like 20 times. And uh, very few people really responded. But J.R. Wood, who was the brilliant program director of Chum Radio at the time, um, saw me and thought there was something there and gave me an audition. 
and said, okay, and brought me on board 1050 Chum as a good news girl. You know, this was the top 40 station that I grew up listening to, you know, my transistor radio under the covers, you know, back in the 60s. So like, wow, this was exciting stuff for me. Uh, they didn't really know what they wanted to do with me. They thought, okay, we like your energy. You've got a young sounding voice. You've got tons of experience. You know, so they just put me on as this, you know, good news reporter. Well, serendipity, hooray for serendipity. Um, that was the year that Chum Radio bought City TV. Ah. So they had this plan to cross promote some of their Chum personalities in, onto the TV side of things. And uh, they decided that they would send me, because I was their good news girl and I was this chick that had had visual uh, media experience you know, from my old days in television, my old days, you know, in, back in the 60s when I was acting professionally. Um, and they took me and they took the boss jock, J.D. Roberts, who was this, you know, adorable Ken doll looks kind of guy, you know, just basically we were two kids from the suburbs, you know, at the end of the day. Um, they would take us and cross promote us on television by giving us a show to host called The New Music which was the brainchild of one of the true geniuses that I have had the incredible pleasure and luck to work with in my life, the late, great John Martin. Uh, he had pitched this show to Moses, this rock and roll magazine show where, you know, like it's going to be really in your face and ballsy and it's going to be smash and grab and we're going to go into the hotel rooms with the rock stars. We're going to ride on the tour buses with them and we're going to go backstage with them and it was wonderful because up until then, the only TV shows to do with music were like Hullabaloo or Shindig or Dick Clark's American Bandstand, where the band would come on and perform and maybe answer a few questions. And, you know, that was it. But we were going to live with these people. We were just going to visit them where they were at. And it, anyway, it was a brilliant concept. Uh, and JD and I sort of got thrown into the role of co-hosts of the show. You know, if Moses had, you know, I had done just prior to that because they knew they wanted to cross promote us in some way. They'd given me um, a kind of audition to go out and do like a, some kind of, <laughs> I, was, I didn't know what the hell I was doing. I took a cameraman and we went down to some sailing school at Harbor Front. And all I knew is that I better look hot on camera. So I wore this <laughs> fabulous vintage sailor jacket that I got at the Army Navy surplus and this really sexy, you know, little t-shirt underneath my boobs wrote there and I just thought okay this is I got to give these people eye candy because I just did, I didn't know what I was really auditioning for except to be on city tv in some capacity so I, I suppose and Yvonne Fitzan was uh, the uh, news director at the time actually the audition was specifically for him but then he must have showed it to Moses and then they decided to take me and put me into this rock and roll show that they were going to do much to John Martin's chagrin because he had a girlfriend at the time that he really wanted her to be the co-host too bad too bad <laughs> so I um you know after having been a good news girl reporter on chum radio for you know a, a, about a year all of a sudden I got onto this tv show and it was like manna from heaven wonderful working with JD and you know with <laughs> well, I, I thought actually this this wonderful story about the first time we met John Martin at a Montreal bistro and he sort of was trying to figure out in his mind what was the chemistry going to be like between JD and Jeannie and how was he going to figure it out. Anyway, it was, it was it's all just such great stuff, but I, I, I was in the right place at the right time. What can I tell you? But I had paid my dues. Exactly. We are all in the right place at the right time, but it, no one offers us anything. You still have to put yourself out there and you oh. did the work to get there. So oh, I, I joined the team in 1981 and I was kind of your assistant. I would book the shoots, um, tell you where you're going, uh, answer the phones, that kind of thing. And it was chaos in there. What is your memory of the kind of direction that you were given in terms of being able to create the new music as an innovative new show? 
not much direction, really. <laughs> right. Just like, go. We were flying by the seat of our pants. We were doing something that no one else had done before. So there were no models to follow. I mean, I right. didn't have a role model. You know, that's why it always pissed me off when, the, you know, sweet young girls would say, I want your job. And it was like, get your own job. Like, this job didn't exist before I sort of started doing it. And, you know, whether it was right or wrong, listen, I'm sure that <laughs> we, did not, we, were, we were not... <laughs> We were not appreciated by the music uh, cognoscente, let's say, early on, for sure. I mean, JD, you know, he was a disc jockey from the suburbs and not really, you know, very, I don't think he'd read very many books at the time. He was just, you know, a gorgeous guy, smooth as silk, you know, had all that going for him. Um, it, I, I was just like this big mouth, big nose chick with a irritating kind of voice that you know like I think people were like what the hell does she know about music and what the hell did I know about music you didn't have to know about music in that way I don't think to do the kind of show we were doing because we were strangers in a strange land to a certain degree and I think that was part of the appeal of the show we would take viewers each week into that crazy world of rock and roll and and examine it as fans, as voyeurs almost. So this um, was so in the seven, this was in uh, the, it started in 79. Yeah. And when I arrived, it was 81. You, in so many ways, have been and were and continue to be a trailblazer. In one particular case, you're a trailblazer for women in media. You were a woman working in the rock and roll music business, which was absolutely a man's world. <laughs> what was that like for you to, to work in that world when you were never taken seriously, partly because you're a woman? Well, it was still fun at times. There were times when that not being taken seriously or uh, you know, just not having the credibility was uh, painful, of course, because people, you know, wrote bad things about me. And I'm a very sensitive person. And I really do believe, you know, they say that, you know, to be in this business, you know, then you got to be tough, you got to have a suit of armor. But I thought, man, if my suit of armor is too thick, how am I going to be sensitive enough to be a great interviewer? How am I going to be sensitive enough to these people? I'm, I'm here to tell people stories. So, you know, I, 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 sort of didn't really quite know about how tough I really wanted to be um, back in the day. But you had but, to be. But you had to be, but you had to let things roll off your back. Mm. You know, the, the brilliant Stan Cleese and Walt Grealis, the two guys that started the Juno Awards all those years ago, um, became friendly with me. You know, they were older guys, of course. I looked up to them. They were like uncles, you know, just the coolest guys. I love them, love them, love them to bits. And uh, Stan said to me once, you'll be really great at this job. You'll be really you know, good in this business as long as you don't take yourself too seriously. And that is still the best advice I would give anyone in any situation. You know, just don't take yourself too seriously. Let it roll off your back. You know, you, so then fast forward to all these years later and the stories with, the, you know, hashtag Me Too movement and blah, Boy, Erica, and I'm sure you you have a few uh, gems you could tell too. You know what these? And I was coming up through the the ranks here at a time when the whole second British invasion, you know, new wave punk scene was really bubbling up. Um, and there were some nasty characters who had never really even been on TV in that way before. I mean, they may have been on TV, like performing on Top of the Pops, but they never really had a crew in their hotel room. They never had like a chick like me, you know, and I was, <laughs> I was kind of foxy. I think, you know, I mean, uh, I wasn't, you know, a great beauty or anything, but I, I was, I had a sense of style. I think, you know, I wore those tight vinyl jeans better than anyone. And uh, these guys were, you know, they'd be rude, arrogant. Some of them were like, coming on to you um, and you had to obviously you know be cool because you didn't want to piss them off and you didn't want to have to forfeit the interview but you had to kind of play them along so it was a brilliant education about how to how to play men in a way I know that sounds so cheap and trampy of me to say I, you know everyone just no, assumed that I was trampy. in bed with all these guys but uh, I wasn't yes. yes I wasn't but I was but you know 
you had to kind of be teehee, play cute, you know, play maybe a little dumb. You couldn't act the way I would act today, the way I would expect my daughters to act if that was happening. You had to play the game. And I, uh, I, it, you know, I played the game to a certain degree, but when I became a little more confident, I stopped playing it and I started calling out the bands. Like I remember telling Kiss, the band Kiss, you're misogynist. What are you doing? Well, I tell you my story about uh, Kiss. Uh, Gene Simmons in the back of a limo, you know, showing me his tongue ad nauseum, you know, saying, why won't you go out with me? I'm a nice Jewish boy. And I was like, oi, this guy went out with Diana Ross. That's sort of cool. And then on the other hand, but he's a creep. How can, no, no a creep. I'm sure he's maybe, okay, maybe he's a nice guy. He did marry Shannon no, Tweed, who I think is lovely. I don't think he's a nice guy. He, in those <laughs> days, it was like, oh, you know, li- listen, this sounds so shallow of me too, maybe to say, but you know, now that I'm 68 years old and I look back at my 28 year old self, it's like, Hey, you know, Gene Simmons came on to me. You know, let's rock, you know, <laughs> Iggy Pop, try, Iggy Pop, but that's a whole other story. How rude and horrible he was to me. I mean, that was kind of mental abuse. But before that night, did he ever come on to me like gangbusters? I have it on videotape in my sizzle reel that, you know, there's, there's Iggy Pop, like, you know, trying to suck up to me. I mean, so it, it's sort of cool um, on some levels that, you know, you've, you felt wanted, but on the, on another level, it's absolutely disgusting and it's terrible. And I, I hope, I hope, I hope, I hope, I pray that it's changed a lot now and that young musicians, you know, aren't doing that with uh, the rock journalists that try to interview them. Cause obviously that would never fly, but yeah, it wouldn't fly. And so in that way you were a trailblazer because you showed that women can do the job and, also showed that women can stand up. And it just teaches you to be so strong. Obviously, it's something that your parents instilled in you. Mm -hmm. Um, You then moved on to much music. So I was talking about the new music, and then you scored the job of the Rock Flash uh, host. And you were only on much music for a a short period of time, but it Mm -hmm. was tumultuous at that time when we were first starting. Do you remember the beginning oh, I, yeah, of I much? remember it well. I remember the first night, that wonderful first night. You know, Eugene Levy was there, and uh, God, it, it was just such a, you know, Getty Lee interviewing all these great people coming into the old city TV building. And I was there wearing this mirror. I always remember what I was wearing. I'm you know, noticing that. A fabulous kind of Michael Jackson style, admirable. Admiral, Admiral jacket that Pat McDonough, the, the late great Pat McDonough, had designed with um, these big epaulets, and it was just a very, very cool night. JD and Christopher Ward came blasting through a screen, and and I was there. And Denise Donlin had uh, just come on board uh, as well, because I remember her being there that night. But I was the one running around the microphone, interviewing everybody at the party, and thinking, "Wow, this is fabulous." But you must understand that by that point, now was that not 1983? Okay, whatever. We launched fashion television a year later. So I obviously had my sights set on other heights, let's say. By that point, I felt I've interviewed Rod Stewart a thousand times. How can I be doing this anymore? You know, not that I didn't love Rod Stewart and it was always fun interviewing him, but you know, and how many more times am I going to interview Sting? And I'd already met most of my rock idols that I had grown up with, you know, mm-hmm. it, so, you know. So good. what was the transition like um, between much or rock and roll and FT, how did that happen? Was it, did you go for the job? Did someone offer oh, you the job? Oh, did I go for the job, Erica? No, <laughs> what seriously, nothing comes easy in this life. Trust me, really, at the end of the day, no, you got it. If you see something you want, you must go for it. So did Not you hear sick. that so, like Jay, Jay Levine was planning yeah. on launching this and then what did you do? Jay Levine, okay, so one, uh, <laughs> Jay Levine was a promotions uh, producer at, City TV, and he got this great idea that he thought fashion was very sexy. He grew up reading his mother's fashion magazines. He was going to put 
fashion on TV, and there were some designers were even producing fashion videos at the time, hoping that fashion videos would do for the fashion industry what music videos had done for the music industry. What they didn't realize is there weren't really any vehicles for these fashion videos, and they were so seasonal and short-lived. So, however, there there was this material that was coming into the station. Actually, I remember at the, at the time Daniel Richler and I were uh, co-hosting the new music and we did put a couple of those fashion videos on the new music, but it didn't really feel right. And anyway, Jay Levine had the great idea of let's do a show, a fashion video show, and I'm gonna get a really hot, he's saying, I'm gonna get a really hot young model to host it, of course, a fashion VJ, we'll call her. And I remember Christopher Ward was going out with Alana Black at the time, uh, Alana Miles. Alana yeah. Miles, I think, yeah. Black Velvet. Alana Miles at the time, and he, you know, lobbied for her to get the job, and uh, and uh, there were a lot of other chicky poos, you know, I'm sure that wanted that job, but you know, this chicky poo just thought, hmm, this is the kind of show that I would like to do, except more than just showing these fashion uh, videos. I'd like to really meet the designers behind the labels and maybe talk to them in the way that JD and I had been talking to the rock stars for all these years, because designers were kind of becoming the new rock stars. You know, Elton John and Versace were hanging out and Goche and Madonna were hanging out and it was just, it was a moment. Um, Terry Mugler and David Bowie. So uh, I, I pitched that, you know, I, when I heard that the show was going on, they went, no, 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 we, we don't want to do that kind of show at all. It's just a sexy fashion video show. Anyway, one day I walked into 299, 99 Queen Street right? Because it was the yeah. original building. Yeah, the original building on Queen, yeah. Queen Street East. And I walked in and the lobby was filled with models, these gorgeous, hot young girls. And it was like, what's going on? <laughs> and someone goes, oh, you know, they're auditioning for the pilot of that fashion television show that they're doing. It was called F, they were going to call it FTV at the time, like the takeoff on MTV. And I went, they are? And I marched right up to Dennis Fitzgerald was the station manager at the time. I marched right up to his office and I knocked on the door and I said, so that show that you're talking about doing, I really think I should be given the chance to host it. I see you're auditioning all these models, but come on, I've paid my dues here. You, you owe me at least that. You gotta let me blah, 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 blah. The next thing I knew, they were saying, okay, Jeannie, you can do it. You can do um, the show a, or you can audition. No, I didn't have to, I'd have to audition. By that point, I'd been already working, uh, you know, I'd already been working at uh, City TV for nine for six years. But what years, changed so. their mind? Because that's a big shift to go from mm -hmm. like a tall, sexy, young, ingenue model well, to a seasoned broadcaster. Mm, um, I, I don't know. I don't know who twisted whose arm. I don't know if it was because, you know, listen, I don't know, speculation, maybe it had something to do with it. I was originally hired by the Waters family who were still, you know, in control of city TV and they were big fans of mine, which is, you know, very nice. Um, I, I'm not sure. I think Moses obviously, you know, thought I deserved a crack at it. I don't think anything ha really happened there unless Moses wanted it to, you know, back in those days, for sure. Um, and I think maybe they thought that I could possibly bring something more to it. And that the show did have the potential to be something more than just sexy eye candy. Uh, anyway, it, it worked out. But boy, I, I really, you know, petitioned for that job. So you did that job for 27 years. Yeah. And I read this quote that I have to read because I think it really encapsulates everything about you. Jeannie reported from the shows with the same intensity as if she was a war correspondent preparing <laughs> and uh, reporting from the front lines. I and thought that was- yeah. Brad Goreski, fabulous Hollywood stylist, uh, brilliant uh, style reporter. Brad Goreski wrote that in his autobiography um, and I was, I cried when I read that because he got it. He, he was this, you know, young gay guy growing up in Port Perry, Ontario, um, and like so many gay people all across the nation and around the world who grew up really longing for some world that was filled with possibilities. We opened a window onto that world and onto those possibilities with our show. So he was greatly inspired by that. And I mean, we, 
probably inspired a whole you know generation of fashion arbiters now and all different aspects of fashion but yes I mean for me it was about passion always you know that ultimately at the end of the day if you're not going to be passionate about it don't do it it's not worth it it's not worth the pain that you're inevitably going to go through it's not worth the heartache it's not worth the effort the work that you know I don't want to live a passionless life not ever so because I was just passionate about, I don't know what it was that drove me to care so much about, you know, the fashion scene and being in the trenches, but it's a very people-driven business. It's something to do with demystifying who these larger-than-life characters are. It's something to do with understanding the nature of ego and creative process. I totally get that because when I worked on Much, that was what I wanted to talk about with all the artists. How is it that you're capable of making this amazing magic? And so it's that same curiosity about artists, really, that seems to drive that passion in you and to connect. You are such a connector of people emotionally. What was the most challenging part of the job for you over those 27 years? Having to grovel. Oh, Having to grovel and lick people's designer boots. I mean, I didn't literally lick people's designer boots, but it felt like it sometimes. Again, it was a big fight for credibility for me, especially in the early days. Television wasn't a medium that uh, these fashion uh, editors welcomed. Uh, these editors that you know took themselves very seriously, uh, the print people, thought, well, what kind of analysis could television ever offer? Television was just there to smash and grab and capture the fluff and the eye candy. You so know? you had a grovel with all the designers? No, to get not the, with the, so who? the designers were brilliant. The designers were fabulous. I tell you, in 27 years, Erica, I never met a designer who was mean to me or an a-hole. <laughs> never. Really? No. Never. But you know who, who the horrible people were? And sorry to all my friends out there who work on that side of the industry. The PR people. The gatekeepers. The people that ran the PR agencies. That were the, they were like the hatchet people. <laughs> they were like the people that would say, no, you're not getting in. And you'd be on the phone with them in the morning of a, a fabulous you know, fashion show that for some reason you'd been denied access to that season and you just knew you had to get in and you just, please, oh, please, oh, please let me in. Just like, uh, so how did you, you know, do oh, it? No, 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 not possible. It was awful. You, yeah, was you, I this, <laughs> this is the stuff that people don't know about. They don't see it because they see you, you know, at the shoot and they see you doing the work and, and that is what you're judged on is your on-camera performance. But really, it's everything behind it, yeah, I think, totally. that, that is the real genie and the real trailblazer and the kick-ass businesswoman is that person. Well, truthfully, I mean, we did try to expose a little bit of that, too. Um, we weren't shy or embarrassed about exposing the snubs that we got or me trying to, you know, worm my way, sneak my way, sneak my cameraman into a show or trying to get an interview with someone that was really, you know, not having it. Uh, so I, I think we did show a little bit of that and a little bit of the, you know, the way we got treated. I mean, we didn't want to go on ad nauseum about it because at the end of the day, people doesn't people don't really want to see other people's sorus, you know, that Yiddish word for trouble. Yeah, but it's, it's people, the, really, people want to, um, you know, just celebrate the scene and see how, you know, exciting it is and how glamorous it is. And, and we, we really wanted to pump that, uh, that up because we were an entertainment show first and foremost at the end of the day. But um, yeah, you, you know, there's a lot, that, but that's, it's like that in every single thing in, in life. I mean, whether you're talking about motherhood, you know, if anyone really understood that isn't a mother, like the shit that goes on, like what the, the yeah. heartache and the, oh, the struggle of just like trying to care for your kid, like, woo, you know, there's a lot of stuff that goes on. Or if you see someone with a wonderful relationship and you think, oh, that's actors, they're in love, isn't that great? But just the, the kind of stuff that goes on behind the scenes, it's like you don't even want to know about it. Sure. There's always layers to these stories for sure. And, uh, it, that's who you know makes you. Uh, that's what makes you who you are. What doesn't kill you makes you stronger. 
So a lot of people talk to you about the interviews that you've done because you've spoken to so many eclectic people um, over the years. What I would like to know is, is there an interview that sticks with you that profoundly changed the way you think about life? Was there someone who really connected with you or that you connected with in a, in a deep way that surprised you and maybe even changed the trajectory of your life? Well, I mean, that's, I think in some ways, most of the people that I had great intimate conversations with over the years, whether it was from the entertainment music world or the fashion world, uh, you know, everything that, that was said to me, you know, I took in and many of those things were like lessons to me. And, and so a lot though it's, you know, the, the some yes total of it all did change my life and, and um, the lens through which I see the world. But I had a very wonderful relationship with Alexander McQueen and I adored him. And uh, he was irreverent and he was hilarious and he was funny. I mean, he could be a real little, you know, he loved to wind people up and he could real, really be a pain in the butt, but he wanted to be. He's very, very playful. Uh, you know, I don't know if you've seen the McQueen documentary uh, that was on Netflix. I don't know. It's still on Netflix, but it's brilliant. If you haven't, uh, people should really see it. Either a lot of my interviews um, were used in that a documentary and, and really ended up, you know, pulling certain things together. I, I, happily now I'm, I'm actually working with, uh, with the guys that put that documentary together on, on another project to stay tuned. Um, but that experience of getting to interview an artist and I do not every designer is an artist for sure. I do believe that Alexander McQueen was a true artist to be able to interview an artist of that caliber uh, who was going through such tough stuff himself, really, really hard, at a time when big business was sucking the artistry right out of fashion and changing the business in, in some kind of wretched ways, really. Uh, that, was, that was very special. And he was very honest with me and, and always very sensitive. And I can't remember exactly which interview with him was my favorite, but... Uh, you know, uh, he got an honorary doctorate at the uh, San Francisco Academy of Art um, he, several years ago. I don't remember the exact year, but I went out to San Francisco to interview him there. And he was in a very reflective kind of mood. He'd gone through a lot of the, you know, the heavy duty bad stuff with, a, you know, too many drugs and too many wild times. And he was being very reflective and he had found Buddhism and he was, you know, and he, he just had this very calming thing about him. And that was a wonderful interview how he had or he was trying to turn his life around and then I had dinner with him later that night and you know he talked to me about uh, how he he couldn't really trust anyone but he had built this huge business and all these people were depending on him this huge company that he had created this world that he just couldn't walk out on how could he and he had he was forced to be there but he couldn't really trust anybody it was just so sad and to tell me about how he'd been abused as a young boy and and I just saw him like this iconic guy who's just ultimately human. And I think that's always the moment that you want to go for as an interviewer. When the curtain is pulled back and you just really see the person for who they are. Absolutely. And you are so generous with the way you tell your stories. You basically do that. So for example, for me right now, I feel like, you're doing something like that for everybody who is listening right now. So thank you for that. Mm -hmm. And I think what's An interesting honor. about your, your trajectory and the great success that, uh, that you continue to enjoy is that it doesn't happen unless there is risk involved. And I wonder if you can tell me what risks have you taken in order to exceed and succeed in the things that you want to achieve well starting from when <laughs> like as a young girl as a, any any risk. you know as a 16 year old i 
decided I wanted to be an actress. And I had absolutely no experience, but I just felt I had I'd taken drama lessons when I was 12 years old or something. And I heard about an open audition casting call at the CBC for the sitcom called Toby, which was kind of you know Canada's version of Gidget. And uh, I have a very dear uh, high school friend at the time, uh, Marsha Rocket said, Jeannie, I think she was the one that told me about this casting call. You should go and audition for that. You'd be great on a show like that. I went, really? Would I? Uh? So I just went down to the CBC, that big, you know, ominous building. And I walked into a room filled with these, you know, people who had grown up in the business, like they had been stars on Forest Rangers and they were like, you know, all the iconic uh, TV shows for kids at the time. These people were veterans of those shows and I had absolutely no experience. I mean, I think I'd starred in a camp play or something. And uh, I auditioned for the role. And for some crazy reason, the executive producers and people putting it together liked me and, uh, and they hired me. But because I had no experience, I couldn't play the lead. I was hired as her best friend. You know, they, they gave the lead to someone who was very seasoned. But that was, and that was my entree. And then I got my union card and then I got an agent. And then I could start doing commercials and, you know, all that stuff. So and then really, I decided, it's about putting yourself out there. Right. I, you know, I moved to New York when I was 19 years old to study acting. And all I had... Uh, with me was $500. I had worked all summer to save that money up and my mother sewed it into my panties because she said, you know, they'll never find it in there. Take your $500. And I popped on a Greyhound bus and went to New York City. I did not know anybody there. I had the names of someone that someone knew that maybe would, you know, have mercy and take me in. But they told me to go to the actors union and try and find a roommate on the bulletin board. And I just I did that like 19 years old, first time I left home, you know. And then a couple of years later, I did the same thing. I went off to Paris to study mime. You know, I didn't really, you know, I couldn't really speak French. I guess as a mime artist, maybe you don't have to speak too much. But, but it, I mean, it was scary <laughs> not knowing exactly what I was getting myself into or where I was going and what I was doing. But, you know, you just got to, you got to go for it if you have a dream. Um, because what's the worst that can happen? You know, your dream's going to get squashed I and mean, you're going to get, run over by a bus and that could happen anywhere in the most innocent situation. You could step out of your house and that could happen. So, uh, you know, you really I have a confession. I have a confession. When you and I were working or when I knew you, when we were in the same building together, mm-hmm. you were pregnant and I didn't really think about the ramifications of that on your life. Only after I had kids of my own did it really did it really hit me. How the hell did you manage to birth two children and maintain an on-camera career in a time when women really were not supposed to show their pregnancy? You had a lot of travel. You were hardworking. It's like you never dropped the ball. And I wasn't allowed to because I was right. told that there was a lineup of uh, 20-year-old girls outside uh, Moses' office um, that would get my job. If, these were the days when you couldn't take a mat leave for a year right. and be guaranteed of your job. You know, even if you took the three months or something that you could take, you uh, were not promised the same job when you came back. And I had worked so hard for my job. Fashion television had just started to take off as my first um, born Becky was born in 1987. So fashion television had just been on the air for two years and it was really going great guns. And I thought, there's no way I can take off if Moses is going to give my job to somebody else. So I what did you do? <laughs> what did you do? So I, I two and a half weeks later, oh, come I on. came back to work. Uh-huh. Yeah. Wow. And I did that with child number two as well. Because by that time, Joey was born in 1989. The show was really like, and again, it was, I knew... Does that mean, I mean, are there people out there listening to this going, oh, what a horrible mother? Oh, I don't know. Maybe I was. I don't know. I don't know. I guess you have to ask my kids. I was going to say. For it? Mm-hmm. Maybe. I'm sure they have. I've tried to make it up in other ways. I tried to be there for them in so many other ways. But that was the reality of having that kind of career at that time in this country, in those conditions. I mean, I'm just, I don't think there could have been another way. And I don't think I could have, well, I'll take off for a few years as I had some dear friends that did. I'll take off for a year or two and then I'll just get back into 
something. I didn't want to get back into something. I wanted to do what I was doing. I just loved it, loved it, loved it. Um, so I started traveling. I would not, my ex-husband and I bought a cottage, became absolutely the center point of our lives, the most important sanctuary you could imagine where I, please, I would never travel on a weekend. Even if I was coming back from, you know, from Russia or Brazil or Sydney, Australia, wherever I traveled in the world, you know, my husband would pick me up at the airport with the two kids and the two cats and the turtle, not Sheldon, the turtle, in the car. And we would drive to Muskoka to this golden little place. It's fabulous, tiny little old 1930s cottage on a sparkling lake. And we didn't entertain there. We didn't, you know, a lot, the kids missed out on a lot of birthday parties because of it. But 48 weekends a year for 10 years, that was our life, that cottage, the most important thing. So because I had all that great concentrated time, I thought, okay, so during the week, and, and my ex-husband, you know, um, was a uh, morning man DJ. So he didn't thankfully ever have to travel. And my mom, was around um, and the nanny was there and you know I mean and this is how we did it and did I cry myself to sleep in hotel rooms all around the world for absolutely and any working mother today I'm sure can relate to that you, it, you're torn and it, it rips you to shreds but I remember one night I was going to leave for Paris yet again and I was you know tucking the kids in you know and they were they were in the same bedroom and reading them a story and. They said, oh, mom, do you really have to go to Paris again tomorrow? That was like, and I thought, I can't take this anymore. And I looked at them and I said, guys, and they must have been like, uh, you know, maybe like four and six at the time. I said, guys, if you really don't want mommy to go to Paris, I'm going to quit my job right now because you guys are the most important things in my life. And I, and I swear to you, Erica, I really felt I just had it. I thought, that's it. I, I just, I'm going to do it. That's it. I'm going to. And Becky, in all her brilliant wisdom, said, oh, no, mommy, you can't lose your job. You've got the best job. You can't leave your job. It's okay. We'll be okay. We understand. We'll see you when you get back in a few days. And that's, and I kept, you know, this was the days before FaceTime, Skype, but this before email, like this was, if you wanted to communicate with your kids, okay, we had a cell phone and you would fax, you know, the kids would draw pictures <laughs> and they would fax me at my hotel and, you know, but I couldn't see them on a, on a, on a phone and, and uh, kiss them goodnight in that way. But I had my cell phone on 24 seven. And even though there was that time difference, I would be running after Carl Lagerfeld at a show in Paris and, you know, at, at, two o'clock in the afternoon and Becky's getting ready to go to school. Mommy, I can't find my purple sweater. Can you help me? You know, like, ah, okay. I, sorry, Carl, I've got a call. And I did, I had that phone beside me by my bed on in my pocket, wherever I was. Cause I thought if anyone, if they really need me, I'm going to be there for them. It's anyway, the, it's the motherhood juggle yeah. and it is part of the constant change in who we are and shifting who we are. And I, I find it fascinating that you have these on-camera skills. And the next thing you know, you're the editor-in-chief in a digital magazine, mm -hmm. where to me, you don't have credentials or skills. You weren't taught to do it, but you have all these transferable mm -hmm. skills that you're I, able to apply. Listen, they used to say in the old days, jack of all trades, master of none. Totally, that, that has totally gone out the window. The more things you can do, the more skills you cultivate, the better you'll be. I wanted to cultivate my writing skills from you know early on. I always loved writing and I just, I did it and I did it on my own. It wasn't like I went to take a course or, you know, my sister was a, a professional uh, print journalist and she was wonderful. But you know, for me it was, no, I didn't really have that experience, but I just started to write write and write and write. I started to write journals and diaries and, and pretty soon I, I found myself, you know, writing a column for Flair magazine under Bonnie Brooks. It was editing it at the time. And, you know, after doing the successful regular column in that for many years, I, I pitched myself to the newspapers and I was writing for the National Post for many years. And then I, I was writing for the Globe and Mail and then the Toronto Star, then I went back to the Globe and Mail. Also during that time, I had the opportunity to edit a magazine called 
FQ, Fashion Quarterly, and Sir, a big, glossy, gorgeous magazine. And I did that for six years. And that, that was great. I was also the very first person to have a, a fashion site on the internet. The very first, in 1994, MCI in the States, they knew fashion television because it was playing on VH1. They came to me and they said, we want you to be the cyber host of a, a, a digital, I didn't know what the hell they were talking about, of a, you know, a, a show, a, a magazine, it's going to be on the internet. I went, internet? I didn't even know what the internet was. They said, yes, we have to get more women using the internet. So we're going to put some of your fashion content. You can write stories about the people you're interviewing and give us pictures and, and present fashion trends on the internet. We did this site called At Fashion, 1994. No one, there was no other site on the internet that had anything to do with fashion. It seems so to thought, me- Wow, I got a chance to do some cool stuff. Yeah, and it <laughs> seems to me that when people approach you to do new kind of kooky things, do you always say yes? What would stop you from doing something? Because you, you're constantly part of interesting projects. Well, you have to be careful not to spread yourself too thin. Oh, come on. How can you even <laughs> say that? You're doing like but 18 things. Well, but, you know, but I, and especially now that I've met the love of my life and have this wonderful relationship that for the past five years, and uh, I've been in heaven with a, a, a fabulous guy. Um, and that's important. And that takes a chunk of you and you've got to be careful that you pay attention to that and you know I still like want to be involved with my kids and I've got you know but I do believe in open heart and open mind and embrace things that appeal to you because you know we're not given a second chance at many of these things if it's not like oh well I'm not too busy for it now I'll think about it next year you know if something appeals to you I mean a lot of it has to do with the people that are pitching you the concept yeah I only want to work with people I like I'm sorry to say it, the days where I was like, I'll bite the bullet, you know, the guy's a creep, but I'm going <laughs> to go for it because I need the job. Or I got, you know what, there is a time in your life when you might have to do that a lot, and a lot of people do that, and you have to, like, hats off to everyone that's suffering in that way, working with people that really are dragging them down. Sometimes you just have to bite the bullet. But now, thank God, I feel like I'm at a point in my life where I do not have to do that. That's one of the sweetest things about getting older. Um, and getting established and finally feeling that kind of security. So, yeah, that, that's, uh, that's important. And if I like the people and if it, if it sounds like fun and if it's not going to drain me too much, sure, sure, I'll try it. I'll explore it. I have a few questions from viewers or listeners. So let me throw a few of them at you. Um, as Pearl asks, aside from your parents, who else had the biggest influence on you? And it's funny because, you know, I joke sometimes, oh, I've had a love-hate relationship with him. But I think Moses Neimer certainly, certainly had a profound influence on me and the way I approached my work and the way I understood the medium that I was working in. Uh, and so much of uh, what I became known for, you know, was associated with his vision and his the style that he inspired. So there's one for you. Nat wants to know what key pieces in one's wardrobe should one invest in? Seriously? I mean, are we still talking about trends? No, I'm kidding. Listen, I love talking about trends. I do that on uh, my weekly show Style Matters on TSC. And uh, that's great because that's really where we do live in our closets and our wardrobes and our suitcases and uh yeah it is important to us so but what key pieces for me right now it, and i think for a lot of us that have been going through this age of covid less is more i value pieces that are of the high highest quality so those pieces in my wardrobe that i've had the longest that still fit me <laughs> and that's i've just gone on a diet to try and get into some of these old gems those those are the ones, those classic, well-made, high-quality garments that really fit well. Those are the ones I treasure. So you have to have like a great blazer. And I don't care if it's from 10 years ago. If, if you still feel good in it, hallelujah, you know, a, a, great, a great pair of a pants that just fit you great, that you feel good in. Um, 
you have to have accessories too. I think accessories uber alles really accessories are the key thing for me. You know, um, I, I have this one Wonder Woman cuff. It's an Elsa Peretti uh, cuff from Tiffany's that I absolutely adore. And um, the minute I started wearing it, I started feeling very empowered. It was given to me actually as a gift um, shortly after my marriage broke up and I entered into a relationship with a new fellow that helped kind of scrape me off the floor. And I finally, uh, I don't know, I just started feeling strong and powerful. So still to this day, I wear that cuff just about every day and, and it does wonders for me. So accessories are, you know, key pieces, this ring, this tiny little ring that I'm wearing, the signet ring, was given to my mother by her brother in 1939 in Poland, the day the war broke out. And it's the only material thing that survived the Holocaust with her. Wow. She was on the run the whole time. Wow. So the moment my mom died and I took it off her finger and I put it onto mine. And I wear this every day because it's a symbol of resiliency and survival. And uh, the fact that life just marches on. Dawn wants to know, what advice do you have for young women looking to evolve into their badass selves? Hmm. Well, stop caring so much about what others think of you, number one. Most important. You can't, you know, listen, we have to be conscious of our public image, you know, to some degree, for sure, especially in certain you know occupations or careers that we may choose but you have to always try to remember who you are really deep down inside and tap into your inner child and i'm not suggesting you know be a badass for the sake of being a badass but you know if if it's something that's going to make you feel better and that's not going to hurt anybody else i say don't even think twice just go for it ellen asks do you experience ageism? Oh, okay. And here I am. The, the, the denier in me will come out and say, oh, no, it's all cool these days. No, you know, yeah, I, I have experienced ageism. I do experience ageism. Ageism is a very real thing in this world, just like racism is, just like a lot of uh, horrible uh, social conditions are. There's no question, especially in this business that's uh, all about image or largely about image. Is it changing maybe a little bit? You know, like you could say, you know, is racism in fashion changing maybe a little bit? There's some you know, wonderful people uh, who are being given the opportunity to do some amazing things and, and that's great, but there's not enough of them, especially, well, so when I'm talking about ageism now, you know, Okay, well, there's Iris Apfel, there's Mae Musk, there's, you know, you, could, you can count them on your fingers, practically, the, you know, the, the women that have been allowed to, to surface that, or, or continue working. Um, so, yeah, it, yeah, there's a, there, there's a lot of that ageism. But, there's all, but I don't want to be all negative about it, because I want everybody to look forward to getting older, because it's the sweetest thing, really, if you can get older and not be bitter and just get better. You know, <laughs> I think it's really, really uh, important to to just really be positive about the fact that a lot of young people now, I'm finding, are very curious about the stories that we have to tell. And there is a kind of respect for experience that just, you can't get it any other way. I mean, I just did a podcast uh, yesterday with these two young people, really wonderful people, um, a podcast called Elevated Grapes, and these two... I call them kids, you know, I don't know how they're probably in their 20s, who really love fashion and they work as stylists and they're, they wanted to know what fashion was like back in the day, back in its golden age. Back at, you know, and it was a delight for me to be able to, to regale them with all these stories of, about the way things were. And they, you know, their eyes just became all starry. And, and that was pretty cool. You know, there's so much that we can teach that younger generation. And I think the younger generation really does respect it, but I think a lot of people in marketing, I think a lot of the problem lies with the marketers. Sorry, marketers, you're, you're brilliant and we love you and you certainly make 
the world go round in many ways, but you know, marketing people just look at demographics and uh, that kind of stuff. And yeah, that's, that, that pulls us back. Can you outline all the projects you're currently working on? Okay, so um, I, uh, I'm the style editor for TSC and uh, coming back with uh, my Style Matters series in September and doing uh, now a new podcast that's going to complement that, but it's not going to be about home shopping. It's just going to be about uh, the zeitgeist and about uh, the way we move through the world and, you know, the bigger style picture. It's going to be called Beyond Style Matters. So I'm uh, really, uh, really excited about that. That's fun. Um, I, uh, well, I was doing a lot of uh, public speaking as well. Sadly, that's kind of dried up now, but, yeah. uh, you know, we'll see. Hopefully that comes back. Um, I, Write. So I write for a magazine called Living Lux. I'm their lifestyle editor, so I get to write uh, columns for them. Um, I do a column with Post City Magazine. Um, I'm a regular columnist now with a wonderful country publication here out in Northumberland County, where my country place is, and it goes to Prince Edward County too, called Watershed Magazine. It's a beautiful oh. magazine. and I'm, uh, So I'm doing a... a column called uh, Joie de Vivre, and that's uh, really been great fun. Um, and I am uh, working on a really big project that I can't really talk about. <laughs> Come on. Uh, it's with, no, I, I alluded to it earlier. It's a, it's a documentary series um, that takes a very intriguing, long, hard, <sighs> perhaps controversial, but certainly electrifying look at uh, that golden age of fashion, as we call it, like what, what happened to fashion and how, you know, how business really changed the face of fashion as we know it. Uh, anyway, that's, so that's something that's definitely bubbling up. Like we're, we're doing it, you know, we have the development deal and it's, it's happening. It's good. It, that could be very, very, very wonderful for me. You know, I, I, I care a lot about um, our archives, the fashion television archives, um, and the old music archives, and my old early days of the new music archives, and all that stuff. And I'm trying to, you know, to find ways to, to give those brilliant archives life. There's just such great content there. So, you know, there might be another project about, you know, the new music, perhaps, um, talking about a lot of interesting possibilities. I think the documentary well, if you need space, an assistant in uh, that particular case. Yes, you proved yourself. You're a damn good assistant, Erica, and cute, too. No. Listen, well, I would love to collaborate with you, too, anytime. I tell you, it's all about synergies with people that you really love and that you like and that get you and that you get them. And uh, thank you for getting me. I love you to bits. Well, I think you're amazing. Talk about an inspiring woman. Thank you, Jeannie. And just so everybody knows, you were this nice back in 1982 when I first started. And I was your assistant. And you brought me to your house. And you opened up your closet to me. And you said, "Wow, do you want to pick some clothes? And wow. I will never forget your generosity. And it was clear during our conversation that that is still such a big part of who you are, just in the types of stories and the advice that you're sharing. Your authenticity is remarkable and you continue to inspire me. And I'm not just saying that because we're on a podcast and there's people looking at us. I really do mean it because you're 10 years ahead of me. So I'm kind of walking in your footsteps to see how I can leverage what I've learned in the public eye to continually involve and reinvent. So thank you so much for, you know, sharing so much of yourself today. And I want to continue um, to say that for people who are watching or listening, I'm always saying watching because of my time on TV, but I really do think that what Jeannie was talking even from the top of the podcast about being down to earth and not taking yourselves too seriously and to being tenacious and 
you know, going for anything that you want. And I love the fact that Jeannie, as she approaches 70 years old. Is oh, hold on a minute. I've still got a couple of years. So in. do I. I'm approaching <laughs> 60, but we are approaching. And We're that approaching. you still are working hard. You still are open to reinventing. You still are learning new things and trying new things. So it never is too late to make a change in your life. And I think that's a really important thing for everyone, including myself, to remember as we all continue our journey of reinvention. And for those of you who are listening, also remember that you are such an important part of this show. And so I have set up a phone line for you to call in and you can suggest who you think I should interview next on reinvention of the VJ. And here's the number, so write it down. It's one. 833-972-7272. Actually, you may not even have to put a one in front of it. So I'll give you the number again. It's 833-972-7272. And um, if you miss it, I'll give you that number again in a couple of seconds. You could write it down. And when you call that number, you can share some stories about any of us. Uh, maybe you met one of the on-air people in real life and you want to tell us about that anecdote or you remember a specific segment or time on Much Music or what it meant to you. Or maybe you have a burning question that you'd like me to ask a future guest. And also, you can share feedback on this episode and uh, the concept in general. What should we improve? What should we change? I'd love to hear from you. And if you're not a phone type person, I get it. You can still reach me on my social platforms. I'm on Instagram, I'm on Twitter, I'm on Facebook, I'm on LinkedIn. Just search Erica M and you can find me. So thanks again to Jeannie Becker for an incredible conversation. I hopefully will see you all next week with another episode of Reinvention of the VJ. And before I go, just remember, here's to living a life filled with music, meaning, and many reinventions. Thanks for listening. Follow Erica M's Reinvention of the VJ podcast. Subscribe and follow more episodes. Click to reinventionofthevj.com. Podcast produced in collaboration with Steve Anthony Productions. Editing and coordination of Flalo Communications, Inc. Copyright 2020. Another Sound Off Media Company podcast. I'm Jeff Woods, and I'm shining a light on music and the rock stars who make it. He just was one of those people, he, he stood out. He was a magic guy. He really was a magic guy. Had all, we all have force. He had the same amount of force as we all had. This was before Led Zeppelin. Robert was full on. I mean, he was Led Zeppelin without the band behind him. He had the hair, the jeans, the whole thing, you know. And he was amazing. The Records and Rockstars podcast, heard around the world and yours to hear wherever you get podcasts. All the episodes from jeffwoodsradio.com.